Hello, I'm Maya Brown, and this is Stories from the Brink. This podcast is about giving voice to personal stories of overcoming challenges in life with grace and humor. Because stories bring us together, and together we all win. So today's episode is about a health challenge that Miguel Sancho, author of the book, More Than You Can Handle, lived through over a six year period with his son, Sebastian, his daughter, Lydia, and his wife, Felicia. Miguel is an award-winning television producer who is currently showrunning and developing series and specials for A&E. Prior to that, he was an investigative producer at 2020 and CBS News' 48 Hours. Miguel, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you to your audience for giving us a little bit of your time, and I promise to try to make it worthwhile. Well, from what I've read of your book, I think there's zero chance that that's not going to happen. So, <laughs> so for those of us who aren't lucky enough to have had a chance to, to read your book yet, you sort of paint me a picture of what your life with Felicia, your wife, and your daughter, Lydia, and your little son, Sebastian, was like in, say, May of 2012. Yes. So May 1st, 2012, our son, Sebastian, was born. He was our second child. Uh, we were living in New York. I had, um, you know, what passed for, you know, an inspiring career, and my wife had also uh, launched her own uh business quite successfully, a little uh, boutique PR firm that was chugging right along. Uh, we'd had, as you mentioned, uh, a daughter, wonderful little daughter um, named Lydia. She was four years old. And like a lot of parents uh, who had such a great time the first time around, we wanted seconds. So, uh, you know, uh, we got pregnant again. Felicia was pregnant, of course. And then Sebastian was born in May 2012. And it was just, we felt so blessed. We, we probably took a lot of those blessings for granted. Mm. And we certainly hadn't been battle scarred, if you will, by uh, life and all the challenges that so many other people face on a regular basis. Um, we might have been a little soft, might have been a little pampered. Uh, and that's kind of where things were when things changed. So what, what changed? What happened? At the age of about seven weeks, Sebastian developed a mystery fever that lasted for 10 days and required him to be hospitalized. And uh, this was the first of a series of kind of mystery infections that required surgeries in some cases and different medications and um, sent us on what is officially known as a diagnostic odyssey when we're, we know something's wrong, but we don't know what it is. And there's a long list of very experienced, credible, reputable doctors who also don't know what it is. Uh, and as you can imagine, um, as that went on and on for a period of months, our lives were kind of upended and we found ourselves just kind of constantly waiting for it to end and go back to normal. And it never did. Instead, what happened is uh, Felicia, my wife, who is, I want to be very clear, the hero of the book, uh, insisted that we go see an immunologist. And after a, some really fascinating um, kind of medical detective work, which I hope the book kind of conveys uh, to some degree of uh, accuracy and, and uh, proper appreciation, we got this 
just devastating diagnosis that our son had been born with a genetic mutation uh, on his X chromosome that had uh, led to him having a very severe and very rare and very oftentimes lethal uh, immune deficiency, which is called CGD for reasons I could explain, but it just let's just call it CGD. But the, the headline is that uh, he was unable to, as a result of this genetic mutation, his immune system was unable to fight off a handful of bacterial and fungal infections that most people can fight off and just as a matter of course without thinking of. And uh, that meant that historically patients with this diagnosis were going to have to deal with severe compromises of their quality and quantity of life. Um, the disease is manageable. Uh, people do live with it. And there's all sorts of, you know, wonderful emerging therapies to help people live better and longer with it. But the immediate impact was we were going to have to um, decide what to do. We're going to try to manage with it. Or should we try the one known curative treatment, which was itself the most among the most arduous, lengthy and risky medical procedures one can uh, go through, which is a, a stem cell transplant, um, which is essentially a way to eliminate the bad natural um, immune system he was born with and create a whole new one from scratch. So, Miguel, when you first really absorbed the magnitude of what was happening with Sebastian, how did you feel? Yeah. So it's a wonderful question. Uh, I remember it like it happened five minutes ago. And I spoke to a number of families who dealt with similar diagnoses, in some cases, the exact same diagnosis. And the best I can do, which I try to relay in the book, uh, you know, as you said, I'm a journalist. And one of the stories that I'd come across in the course of being a journalist was the story of a guy who'd fallen off the seventh uh, balcony of a cruise ship while he was cruising around the Caribbean. And that's basically the best way I can uh, describe it. Just not, not just panic, not just um, fear, but an overwhelming sense of how did I get here? You know, you know, and, and, you know, the, the guy who fell off the cruise ship <laughs> doesn't really remember that much of it. He just remembers waking up in the middle of the Caribbean and seeing the cruise ship steaming over the horizon. And that's kind of like what we were. We, so we found ourselves again in a world with no bearings, no way to assimilate it and could only just see what we thought was going to be our normal lives and our futures kind of abandoning, uh, abandoning us in this new situation. So that's kind of a, a way to describe it um, metaphorically. Um, and then physically, I can just tell you, you know, it's, it's when people say it's devastating, that's a word. Uh, what that means is sleepless nights, inability to eat, inability to concentrate, spontaneous and prolonged crying jags, bouts of anger, bouts of just intense gnawing anxiety. Mm. Uh, people, different people deal with it different ways. Different people, I, I'd be the first to say other people deal with it better. Um, I think men and women oftentimes deal with it differently. Um, Felicia herself, you know, in addition to feeling this, this terror and this sadness, 
felt a certain degree of responsibility just because the 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 genetic mutation came from the X chromosome. Um, and of course, it's not. She didn't do anything wrong. She was perfectly responsible mother uh, during pregnancy and, and onwards. But uh, all the mothers I've spoken to have this feeling that somehow they've failed as parents. They've inflicted this disease on their child. They've done something wrong. There's a certain degree of shame in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, it, it was very tough. Well, first of all, I'm just I'm so sorry. Um, what you describe. It sounds terrifying, terrifying, disorienting. All of the above. You can read all the parenting books in the world and none of them will tell you how to watch a child suffer. And that's a real challenge that a lot of people face. Again, it's really important for me to say over and over again, many other parents deal with this. Many other parents have it much worse than we did. You know, they get diagnoses of conditions that are a lot more severe with a lot more pessimistic outcomes and a lot of parents do have pessimistic and unfortunate outcomes with their children that we were able to avoid so you know much respect and uh, all the empathy in the world for what what they go through but the book is dedicated to those who have it tougher and uh, there's plenty of them that's a really interesting point that you just made so you're in the middle of this terrible moment and feeling like the cruise ship is sailing off over the horizon and yet, when does that perspective start to creep in that there are people who have it worse? Is that like an immediate thing or is that something that sort of starts to come in later, that perspective? Well, two things happened. I'll, I'll I, again, there's a certain kind of memory works in interesting ways, right? You know, some things are a blur and other things are just like snapshots on your iPhone that you can conjure up like that. Uh, one of the things that I remember distinctly was making this terrible mistake when we got the uh, con- confirmation of Googling the condition on, uh, on the home desktop. And um, that's when you got hit in the face with all these stories of these really, really um, severe, sometimes gruesome uh, infections that kids with this disease can get. I want to say over and over again that, you know, the science is advancing in leaps and bounds and there's all sorts of ways to manage the disease that make a huge difference even from what was 15 or 20 years ago. And the book tries to um, describe that evolution. But that was one, and I, I don't like giving unsolicited advice, but folks, if you do get a diagnosis or some sort of medical thing, I would strongly caution you not to Google it in the, uh, within the first 12 hours of, uh, of getting that news. It never helps. And then the second moment that really uh, struck me was when we had to take Sebastian to the hospital uh, for yet another surgery. His surgery was relatively minor, but operating on an infant is, Mm -hmm. you know, is this whole other, you know, constellation of uh, things that you have to deal with. And while we were in the pediatric ward, I'd gone, I don't know if it was to the bathroom or just to get a drink of water, just to get some air. But as I come, came back, in one of the adjacent rooms, there was a family that had just gotten some really bad news. I didn't, I didn't pry, I didn't, I didn't really want to know, but I just remember them coming out in tears, you know, hugging each other, looking for someone to hug, looking for some answer that they just weren't going to get. And, um, you know, not every baby makes it is the bottom line. And, um, that's when, you know, again, 
it was, in a way, it was very helpful, and it continues to be very, very helpful to kind of get snapped out of your own immediate little world where you think you're the most important in your child. Of course, you have to be an advocate for your child. You're in your own little hospital room, but it's a big world out there, and a lot of people are dealing with stuff that is orders of magnitude more um, severe than what you're coping with. You just said something I think is really important. What do you mean that you have to be an advocate for your own child? Well, in the in the simplest sense, you're making decisions for uh, a being that you know because they're children, they don't understand. They they can't really process what's going on. They can feel pain, but they can't um, make rational decisions. They can't read the research. They can't comprehend what a doctor is saying to them. Um, so you have to not just kind of make the calls, but you have to be the one, um, kind of in some cases insisting on certain courses of action. Now, again, my wife is the hero of the story and the other heroes are the doctors and nurses who saved my son's life. So I, I want to say two things, a, you know, most doctors are extraordinarily compassionate and competent, but they're, you know, they're juggling lots of stuff. So you have to be the one trying to you know, stay focused, trying to, you know, insist. Um, and then sometimes it's just a matter of reminding uh, uh, doctors of a certain things, um, especially if you're in a situation like we were early on where you're kind of bouncing from hospital to hospital and you um, are seeing sometimes as many, you know, a dozen different doctors in the course of a, a few weeks and people are, you know, just have to repeat the same story over and over again. All that and things changed when we went out to Duke and we had a specialized team dedicated uh, to conducting the transplant, which is wonderful in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you have to be um, there being the voice. Now, the flip side of that is unless you are a doctor and I'm not. Comes a point where you have to let the doctors be a doctor. Your job is to be the parent that you, you got to do what the doctor can't do. Um, but a, a lot of times people, you know, because they love the child more than you know, the doctor would naturally, they do all the research and they, they kind of think that they know more than the doctors or that they can, you know, um, second guess a lot of the doctor's decisions. And, you know, doctors are, should be, you know, questioned and probed uh, to, so they can, you know, give you an explanation for what they're doing. But you also, and it was important for me too, to kind of know my role, know my own limitations and let the doctors be the doctors at a certain point. In the middle of a situation, where you're so upset and so thrown off guard and taken by surprise, how, how can you keep your perspective? What things, was there anything that was helpful to you? Right. So this is the point in the conversation where I need to be very upfront with your audience and say, please don't take me as like the guru here, the guy who has all the answers, the guy who figured it all out right away, the guy who, you know, um, handle it all so well. The book is called More Than You Can Handle for a reason. And the fact of the matter is I did not handle it particularly well for you know, a long stretch of time. For the first you know, you know, two years of this, I was, um, you know, I, I, I adopted certain approaches that looking back on it, I would not recommend to people. First of all, I tried denial. I tried just saying, okay, yes, he's getting sick, but he's gonna get better. All we need to do is, you know, get them the right medicine or get them the right um, uh, doctor and we can all go back to our normal lives. 
Then when he got the diagnosis and we knew this was not just a, you know, transient thing, this was a permanent serious thing. We understood that even then, you know, both Felicia and I had some kind of misconceptions that maybe this is something that can be treated with diet or, you know, something, you know, oftentimes people, this is a very common thing. People confuse immune conditions or immune deficiencies with autoimmune conditions, two very different things. Um, and you can kind of, if you confuse them or if you want to confuse them, you can lead yourself to some misguided or even magical thinking. Um, I tried stoicism, you know, which kind of, I think, plays into a lot of men's understanding what masculinity means. Um, trying to just, you know, absorb pain, trying to turn it into a endurance contest, mm -hmm. trying to prove to yourself in the world that nothing can get to you. Um, kind of like some, you know, ancient, uh, you know, Greek or Roman, uh, soldier or what have you. And, um, that can get you a few, that can get you a little ways maybe, but it's, it certainly didn't get me all the way because what ended up happening was, you know, I just started, um, breaking down. I started having anger episodes. Yeah. I started having very intense anxiety attacks. I got depressed. Um, and I wanted to kind of um, tell myself that I could get through it. I tried workaholism, which I think a number of people who consider themselves achievers uh, can be familiar with, mm -hmm. uh, because work when you're when your domestic world is in chaos, and when you're when you're kind of being you know thrust into a whole other identity that you don't really want to have <laughs> the identity of a parent with a sick kid the identity of a victim the identity of somebody who's you know a charity case if you will somebody worthy of pity um that all really repulsed me and work on the other hand was a place where hey i was doing things that had nothing to do with kids sickness for starters but mm -hmm. also where i was a little bit of a somebody right um, my opinion mattered and I had some expertise that I could contribute to conversations and I had a little bit of status and, you know, I could tell people what to do sometimes. And so, you know, I just kind of ran to that and tried mm -hmm. to um, save myself with that. And of course, what ended up happening is when you're dealing with work and you think that work can do all that for you, you end up neglecting the other parts of yourself that need to be tended to and you end mm -hmm. up creating hell on earth. Uh, for yourself and for the people at home and in cases for people at work, your colleagues. So I don't recommend workaholism either. Okay. I think you're being really hard on yourself just for the record. <laughs> well, well, this I'll is a really this. terrible thing you're trying to deal with. Of course, you try to plug in all the things you know, right? You try one thing, doesn't denial. Okay. Then you try, you go stoic. No, that's not working. Okay. Uh, workaholic, you know, no. So it's yeah. trial and error. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I left out bourbon and marijuana too, which, oh, well, uh, which I, yeah. I still consume in moderation, but for time I was consuming them in a little bit less than moderation. No, look, yeah. I mean, I, I, these are normal things. Yeah. I mean, I don't hate my own guts uh, and I don't think anybody should hate their own guts. But one of the things that I, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I spent 20 years as a journalism, right. as a journalist, rather kind of chewing over other people's lives. Right. And when you do journalism on a professional scale and you're doing lots of it, <clears throat> just to kind of keep yourself, you have to, you know, you end up kind of treating other, treating stories like what they are. They're kind of like 
products in a way. They're kind right. of commodities. And you know, that's that's not why you go into the business, but you end up having to kind of adopt that mindset a little bit just to just to kind of turn the stuff out. So one of the things I want to do with this book was say, okay, you've you know dissected other people's lives and other people's problems. What's it going to be like if you train those powers of analysis and skepticism and judgment on yourself? Do, do you have the ability to do that? And to be honest with you, you know, I, there's plenty in the book of self-deprecation, but there could be, there could be more. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's, that's one of the things I wanted to do. But, okay. So you're talking about skepticism and analysis, and those are things that people who are well-educated are taught to use as tools in the world, right? Mm -hmm. but, but are those the tools that are actually, that were actually the most helpful to you in getting through this six years? Great question. Um, and if not, like, yeah, what's more so, helpful than skepticism and right. you know, critical thinking? What can yeah. help you? Yeah. Well, so I don't want to just poo-poo skepticism and critical thinking. No. Those are really important tools, not just for kind of your day-to-day -day survival and achievement, but for coping. It was very helpful to me to learn a little bit, um, and again, just basic layman's level. Um, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't purport to any kind of expertise, but learn a little bit about the immune system. Yeah. Learn a little about uh, this fascinating process of bone marrow transplantation. Learn and it, and it, it's not just a matter of like, ooh, I feel better because I'm expanding my vast body of knowledge the way a bodybuilder might feel better when they get bigger biceps. Um, but it, there's a consolation to it, right? You know, it's a, we can be very cynical and very pessimistic about the world we live in, but scientific advancement, scientific process, excuse me, the scientific process and the scientific product and the progress is very uplifting a lot of the times, right? And, you know, my son was very ill with a very rare disease. And he might, there was a, there was a very distinct possibility that he might not live very long. Hmm. Um, so one of the things that kind of brought me consolation was that, you know what, though? He, we're participating in the, the medical research. Okay, we enrolled him in every kind of study. And so no matter what happens to him, we're giving a little bit to this very important process. We're helping, you know, push, you know, the 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 realm of knowledge the realm of possibility for just ever so so little uh in, in the tiniest ways so studying that learning about that participating in it uh that scientific analytical rational stuff was good not just again for kind of one's own education but it gave me a sense of peace but that wasn't enough i mean there's you still got to live your day to day right you still got to find a way to wake up in the morning. You still got to find a way to go to sleep at night, which was a big problem for me, you know, lying awake, staring at the ceiling, you know, imagining worst case scenarios. And I also had to keep my family together or at least prevent it from coming apart. Because, you know, as I said, you know, these, these conditions, these diagnoses are immense stressors and chronic stressors, right? And the chronic stress does something to your brain. It actually shrinks some of the dendrionic uh, connections in the frontal cortex. It, it, it grows the amygdala, things that are not good for, you know, human relationships in general. So I ended up basically on a whole other odyssey of trying to find some modality of self-help that would help me keep it together. Right. Uh, and that included everything from meditation 
to individual therapy, to couples therapy, to uh, medications. Yep. Of course, you know, diet and exercise are play their own roles in this. And, you know, so much has been said about all those things. Uh, you know, a lot of it's obvious. I don't want to just kind of lapse into cliches. The, mm-hmm. the one thing that I learned, though, that uh, aside from the kind of obvious thing that men in particular, I think, need to kind of not wait until it gets to total crisis mode before you, uh, you know, go and get the help you need. But also it's okay to mix and match, you know, like I did meditation for a long time. I still do. Uh, it helped, but there were certain times when, you know, it didn't just magically solve everything and I needed additional tools and modalities. You don't have to feel like a loser or like you're cheating on someone. If you <laughs> go to a therapist as well as to a, a meditation, uh, uh, teacher. Right. Um, and these are all things that, you know, I'd be the first to say might be very obvious, um, to most people, but they weren't that obvious to me. It took me a long time to not just kind of nod my head and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then actually do it. And still to this day, you know, I still need reminders. I still, you know, I can veer off track. I haven't, it's not like I've just been to the mountaintop and had a transformative experience and have all the answers. You know, I am, uh, uh, and I really want your audience to understand. I am much more of a thought follower than a thought leader. Um, and I think, if there's one way in which I was kind of miseducated, it was to think that um, I always need to do the talking as opposed to listening. But does it matter which role you're in so long as you survive and you're there to care for your child and your wife and your other child and, and be you? Yeah, you're right. The, the most important thing is to be present is to, you know, for me at least, to execute my obligations as a father and as a husband and as a provider. But, you know, there were times when I didn't do a good job of that either. There was a times when I was too much in my own head or too out of control or too depressed or too stressed to uh, be on my A game. And just as a, as a favor, as a matter of respect and love to the people around me, I needed to make some changes. Right. So you also mentioned that one thing that was really important to you is a group of people that your wife refers to as angels. Mm-hmm. So who, who are, who are the angels and what, what's their role in helping you guys through this, this crisis? Yeah. So the kind of faith journeys that, you know, my wife and I went on is one of the themes of the book. And right. frankly, it was one of the points of conflict because, you know, she was always more open to that. Uh, than I was. I kind of was like a lot of educated people, you know, kind of, I didn't poo-poo religion, but I kind of, you know, kind of gave it its place and kind of, uh, uh, but didn't really embrace it the way she did. And one of the ways that, uh, that I learned and I grew was by observing her and how her faith wasn't just some superstition. It was what is uh, sometimes described by one of my favorite theologians, Dom- John Dominic Crossan, as kind of a courtesy outlet for your cell phone, right? Faith is, can be understood as like a way to plug in and get extra energy to recharge yourself. Uh, it, has, it's a, it can be a very practical, useful thing for people in crisis. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but specifically to answer your question, in the course of this process, there were a number of times when out of the woodwork, people who were, who were either complete strangers or were people that we kind of knew, 
but you know don't know that well or we'd known very well at some point but kind of fallen out of touch with you know people with whom we'd had the kind of attenuated relationships that everybody who grew up in the age of Facebook knows about right just spontaneously super altruistically gave of themselves not just kind of comments and you know heart emojis but you know helping us buy groceries helping us find cars helping us move from uh New York to to Durham North Carolina when we went to Duke for the transplant uh, all these things that were so uplifting and comforting not just in the narrow sense of you know thank you because I need help with this particular task or whatever but in the broader sense right I mean people disappoint you so many times right our heroes disappoint us our families disappoint us our friends turn out not to be necessarily the people we think they are sometimes politicians certainly disappoint us right so to have those angels for lack of a better term coming into one's life just gives you so much more faith in humanity and who we are as a species and that um you know it's not all cynicism and self-interest out there um that was very beautiful for us and sustained us in a lot of ways i love the way that you put that and i also think that it's difficult for me to say from the outside because I didn't go through what you guys went through. But I wonder if now on the other side of the crisis, um, does it seem to you that maybe that discovery was a kind of gift that came out of this process? That discovery that people can just give and just show up for you and just make a difference in ways we don't expect them to? Um, I wouldn't wish a rare disease on anybody. No. I no, wouldn't no. wish a bone marrow transplant on anybody. But no. that said, it was an extraordinarily valuable experience seeing what the capacities of the human spirit are, right. what the capacities are of the, you know, human community, what the capacities are of medicine and science. Right. And to a certain degree, the all that kind of coalesces in the the persona of the nurse, right? Okay. So the story is after, you know, we get this diagnosis, we spent years trying to figure out what to do. Ultimately, we decide to go the route of a bone marrow transplant at a Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina, which is one of the few places that has um, the experience and the willingness to treat, um, you know, very rare cases like Sebastian's mm -hmm. in this way. And on this transplant unit, where we basically spent eight weeks, you know, encased behind, you know, airlocked doors, we had, you know, repeated an intimate um, contact, not just with our doctors, but with these nurses, nurses who specifically chose that kind of work. Why? Because unlike, say, ER nurses, who are great people, by the way, um, the, the nurses in the, the transplant unit specifically wanted to have ongoing bonding relationships with their patients, right? A process like that that goes on for, you know, weeks and months takes a lot out of the patients, but also takes a lot out of the <clears throat> nurses. And, you know, they, like the doctors, they might have to go from one room where a kid is frankly going to die within a few hours to another room where a kid is going to be released successfully, you know, that day. And they have to be on and they have to be present and they have to be on their A game. And to see that kind of altruism and love and professionalism was really, really profound. 
you know, that that transplant unit was obviously a, pa- a place of intense suffering, but it's also a place of intense love. And, you know, I don't want to get too spiritual on folks. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not preachy. But I'll tell you, I've been to the Vatican and I've been to the Western Wall, but it was there in my son's uh, hospital room that I felt closest to the divine easily. Wow. I just got chills from that. Um, do you think that you would have had this experience of being that close to the vine without this experience with your son? Do you think if if everything had gone with Sebastian as it did you know, with Lydia, if he hadn't had this diagnosis, do you think you might have missed learning yeah. about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wasn't a, a, in, you know, a, I wasn't a sociopath, um, no. <laughs> but, and I wasn't, you know, I had friends, I cared about people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, especially if you live in New York and you're, you know, uh, whatever, you consider yourself in the professional class, you know, you find yourself in kind of a success cult mm-hmm. and you find yourself um, kind of measuring uh, your life by certain standards that might have nothing to do with real value. Ultimately, it was very liberating to be able to kind of put that uh, behind us. And again, my wife, Felicia, you know, really has done a lot more and and has done a lot better with this on a number of levels. But to, you know, liberate yourself from certain measures of status, to liberate yourself from what I sometimes call the parenting industrial complex, this whole notion that you have to be like buying every baby book and sending your kid to the best classes and seminars and tutors and there's this whole billion dollar industry right built around making your kid you know your own little trophy child uh and you know for us (laughs) and lots of you know parents in our situation there was a time when all we cared about was is our kid going to be able to just digest food ever again right is our kid ever going to be able to like go to a playground again is our kid going to be able to, uh, is his hair going to grow back? When, you, when your life gets measured in those terms, it's a lot easier ultimately to um, put things in perspective. The flip side of it is, it's also a bit alienating, right? I mean, right. when we came back, and this is another thing that I just want people to understand about the book, it's not like we just had this intense experience and the kid got cured and then we all got cured and everything else was fine, right? The entire back there's a back section of the book that you know, goes yeah. into some detail about how, you know, we're still dealing with stuff, right? Okay. It's not just, you know, beautiful Hollywood ending. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, you know, you feel, you find yourself a little bit alienated from the normal quote unquote world. And ultimately we just made our peace with that. You know, we had this experience and it kind of gave us a different perspective. And if that makes it kind of harder for us to relate to, um, you know, families, that haven't had that, you know, it's something we want to overcome. We want to transcend it, but we just have to give it its place and understand right. that, um, you know, there's, there's a reason for that. There's a really big reason for that. Um, do you feel that alienation may have been ameliorated at all by what people, what everyone has been going through because of the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, again, I, I can't say enough. I wouldn't wish a global pandemic on anybody. No. Um, and, I do think that many of the things that we have had to endure have been truly, truly awful. 
the first of which, of course, is uh, all the all the people who've died. Um, I, uh, I I've lost a couple people um, in the last right. few months, and uh, I'm uh, just their families um, are still, you know, just kind of trying to make sense of it all. And then the social distancing thing, man, we lived for, you know, a long chunk of Sebastian's life in some degree of social distancing. And it's not good for folks. Mm -hmm. It's just not good. And it, uh, I'm looking very much forward to a time when we can move past it. That said, there were some silver linings to, to our experience. Um, One of which was we were able to spend quality time with each other, really meaningful time with each other. We were able to get to know each other very well. We were able to have a prolonged period of intimacy that a lot of families can't, not because they're bad people, but because there's just all these distractions coming at us all the time. Right. Even if you're working from home, right? You've got to deal with your house, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, there was an opportunity there that, um, that we were able to, I think, um, take advantage of to a certain degree, especially Felicia, right? Because she was the primary caregiver. I was still working, um, but Felicia was with Sebastian, uh, particularly when we got out of the the unit and were basically confined to our apartment for months, you know, and she was just able to be there for him, like, like other moms and other transplant parents were. And that was kind of a singular um, gift. Really amazing. Um, I'm so happy that um, he did have, that Sebastian did have a prognosis that was not um, as grim as it could have been. And I'm so happy that you guys have stayed together as a husband and wife and as a family, which I know was a big struggle. Yeah. And still, we look, you know, we still have challenges and issues. You know, we, we when the pandemic first hit, we were like, okay, we got this. We know the drill. Uh, <laughs> And then for the first, but I, I was, you know, somewhat delusional. I was like, you know what? Because remember hitting March, like, you know, by May, we're going to be back eating restaurants and we'll have our lives back. There's no way it could go on for much longer. Um, one of many classic examples when I've been profoundly wrong. And as it goes on, you know, we've uh, just, you know, like many families, you know, some of the, some of the challenges have popped up again. Um, mm-hmm. And it's important for me um, to kind of stay on my program, to not, you know, let things drift because even though I've had this, you know, transformative experience, right. It's like, it's like staying in shape, you know, just because you've, you know, run one marathon. And by the way, I've never run a marathon, but just because you've run a marathon doesn't mean you're going to be in shape for the rest of your life. Right. The fact that you haven't run a marathon just proves that you're way more intelligent than I am. So, uh, (laughs) But what is, what is your program? What's your program made up of? What are the parts of your program that you need to stay on? Right. And again, the preface here is that, you know, I don't have all the answers. This is no, not what works for you. What yeah. works for you? What works yeah. for me is basically it's a, it's a stool with four or five legs, you know, okay. it has to be, you know, some form of meditative practice or prayer, okay. you know, meditation, okay. mm-hmm. some form of uh, regular exercise, some form of uh, therapeutic uh, engagement, you know, either one-on-one or mm-hmm. couples or, you know, any other kind of scenario. It doesn't necessarily have to be somebody with, you know, degrees on the wall as far as I'm right. concerned. Somebody who, you know, you can have truly neutral listening and interaction with. And then on an as-needed basis, 
the medication. You know, there was a time when I, uh, like I said, I thought meditation was going to kind of sustain me. And then we had another setback. Uh, this is back in 2013, 2014. Mm. And it was clear that meditation was great. But, you know, uh, there are times when I needed um, to go on some medication. And, you know, you can see I'm hesitating because there's some lingering kind of shame about that. But it's the truth. Mm. You know, I think part of my ego in my particular case is like, I always thought, right, for me, the kind of cognitive skills, the intellectual stuff, the erudition, that was my little, that's what worked for me. That's how I made my way in the world, right? I'm not the best looking guy in the world. I'm not the richest guy in the world. Um, I'm not the most kind of charming guy in the world. What my superpower is how my brain works. Mm -hmm. And to accept the fact that it wasn't working, that it was actually malfunctioning on some level Mm -hmm. was a tough pill to swallow. Very tough. And that can still be the case if I'm not, if I'm not, you know, mindful of that possibility and trying to stay on that, that program. Um, so for me, it's an ongoing practice. It's an ongoing thing. Um, you know, after Sebastian was cured and we came back and, you know, I thought it was going to be the dance scene in the credits at the end of Slumdog Millionaire. <laughs> and we were all just going to be happy forever after, you know, we still had issues. I still, um, you know, fell apart sometimes. And so mm-hmm. you're yeah. saying you're still a human being, even yeah. after all that. <laughs> right. Well, you got to do the health of the kid is one thing, but you're your own thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as I say, you know, we need immune systems for our bodies, but we, we also need to try to make sure we acquire immune systems for our brains because man, life mm-hmm. keeps coming at you. It certainly does. Well, I really appreciate you joining my conversation and I wish you incredible success with your book and wonderful health for all of you guys. And you too and all your listeners. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you for all the great work that you're doing. And thank you, you. Know, um, I wish you all the success. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining the conversation today. Remember, stay present and share your story. Stories bring us together and together we all win. Stories from the Brink is produced by Billy Robinson, hosted by me, Maya Brown, music by Octopus Kid. <laughs>